Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Puerto Rico has been the focus of a lot of attention from the United States, both in terms of recovery from the devastating Hurricane Maria, as well as uh, in its attempt to restructure its debt. I am very pleased to say that we have with us Governor Ricardo Rosselló. He is the 12th governor of Puerto Rico, and he joins us from our 99 studios in Washington, D.C. Uh, governor, I- I'm just wondering whether you have uh, some particular item that you are hoping to hear from President Trump tonight at the State of the Union. Well, there's uh, there's many items I would be very much interested in, in hearing, but I, I would say that uh, from our vintage point, uh, making sure that the recovery process in Puerto Rico and elsewhere in the nation uh, is uh, one of the priorities, that we can focus on getting the funding to the places that have a need to rebuild uh, and to recover. And I, I think that is uh, uh, important to state that uh, that is a priority and funds that are destined to those jurisdictions are not going to be utilized uh, to, say, build a wall. Uh, I think it's a, it's an important outcome. So, Governor, how much has Puerto Rico received in uh, a recovery funding from the federal government? And how, compare that to what you had hoped for at this stage. Are, are you short? I'm guessing you're going to say you're short and there's a deficit. Just give us a sense of the scale. Yep. So so to give you a sense of the scale, we've been working with FEMA and other stakeholders on what the uh, transformation and rebuild uh, plan should be for Puerto Rico. The estimated cost at this juncture is uh, it's $139 billion. Uh, last year, uh, we, we've received probably from FEMA uh, anywhere from three to three and a half billion dollars. And uh, our expectation, of course, is is to get that bumped uh, much higher. Um, uh, we uh, there there are some reasons why this process has been slow, and it's because it's different in Puerto Rico than in other jurisdictions in the United States. Uh, for example, uh, in Florida or Texas or any other state, the state controls the disbursement process, whereas in Puerto Rico, FEMA controls it. And you might ask, well, what would be that outcome? Well, uh, a comparison should uh, should highlight what the order of magnitude difference is. Uh, take Katrina when uh, uh, it impacted Louisiana. Uh, by the same time after the hurricane uh, that, that that we're measuring against Maria passing through Puerto Rico, they had already uh, 9,500 projects that were being moved forward, uh, whereas in Puerto Rico we only have 44. So there you, you can sort of sense uh, a, a scale of the magnitude difference of what where we should be now in the recovery yeah. and uh, our sense for petitioning that these restraints uh, that are pra- placed in Puerto Rico should be uh, should be taken away. You, you, you started off saying that you want to see what President Trump has planned with respect to potentially diverting money away from Puerto Rico, among other places, to pay for the wall. What recourse would you potentially have if he goes ahead and does that, which is what he's threatened to do? So, so this is interesting. I've about four months ago, uh, you know, my job as, as governor is, is not only to act, but also to anticipate. And uh, I had a sense that this might be a discussion uh, where funding for recovery would be utilized uh, to build a wall. 
so we prepared our team uh, and we started studying all of the legal avenues that we have. And we have a, a very robust case. I mean, uh, some of the monies that are coming to Puerto Rico, uh, uh, the, com the community development block grants uh, that are used to, uh, uh, to, for disaster relief, those were passed by Congress and they were signed by the president. So uh, those are statute right now, and we feel very comf uh, confident that those monies have to go to Puerto Rico. So if there was any dipping there, um, uh, we would certainly uh, battle it. So uh, for most of the monies, uh, we have a strategy forward. And, and of course, uh, we hope we don't have to get there. We hope that the president would see that, you know, rebuilding U.S. citizens' lives is a priority. Uh, but if it gets to that point, we are ready to battle. So, Governor, let's talk about the, the rebuilding process in Puerto Rico. I'm sure you have a priority list. Give us a sense of, given where you are right now, uh, you know, a year plus removed from the hurricane, you know, what are the two, one, you know, the one or two or three critical things that Puerto Ricans need uh, right now to be addressed? I, I think in terms of projects, I would say uh, the energy grid uh, is a top priority. Uh, we have a, a very weak, old uh, energy grid that uses uh, expensive fossil fuel. And uh, our objective is to use recovery funding and uh, private partners to leverage that and rebuild a modern energy grid that's uh, more cost effective uh, and that is better for the environment and that frankly can be a model uh, towards the future. Uh, I think rebuilding roads in Puerto Rico and, and infrastructure is is uh, uh, fundamental, uh, fundamentally cri critical for our, our economy uh, moving forward. And the other uh, part is addressing our, our labor force and the labor participation rate. Uh, you know, with these recovery funds that are coming to Puerto Rico, with the incentives uh, that are very competitive that we have on the island, with the opportunity zones uh, that will bring about many investment opportunities to the, to the island. Uh, I think we have a, a, a window of opportunity to yeah. enhance and grow that labor participation rate. Governor, I, meanwhile, amid all of the talk with President Trump, uh, meanwhile, bankruptcy court has approved a plan to restructure some of the $74 billion of debt that the island has. Uh, sales tax bonds are rallying on this news. It has been, this is this accounts for about $17 billion of, of, of bonds. And basically, there were, and according to my understanding, the sales tax collected by the state would be split between the bondholders and the state. How can you be sure that you'll get enough revenues to be able to engage in some of these projects without just uh, the benevolence of Washington, D.C.? Right. So, so you know, the rebuild of Puerto Rico has many, uh, many faces. One is on the fiscal front. One is on the economic front. And, of course, now the, the humani humanitarian and structural front. Uh, once we devised this is based on a fiscal plan that has been devised where implementing certain structural changes would allow us to get savings in government while at the same time enhance our, our revenues because our economy is, is moving forward. We've implemented uh, labor reform in Puerto Rico. We've implemented permits reform in Puerto Rico, tax reform, uh, uh, as well as other uh, critical structural changes that we feel are going to help us uh, enhance uh, and uh, uh, Puerto Rico uh, moving forward. So with, with all of those components in line, uh, we, we see a path that once we clear away uh, restructuring of the debt uh, with the expected surplus or part of the expected surplus that there is, we're going to have a nice runway forward to increase uh, our economy uh, and to add significant value. Look, we're betting on 
uh, nascent uh, uh, markets. Um, we're betting on uh, medical cannabis in Puerto Rico. Uh, we're betting on uh, cryptocurrency and um, and blockchain in Puerto Rico. We are betting on hemp uh, as a as an open market, e-gaming, sports booking. All of those are markets that are not readily available now in Puerto Rico and that we're pushing forward. So combined with a, a lot of the things that we have going right. on in our island, it's going to be a, an exciting time moving forward if we Excellent. get these debt process uh, uh, Governor, to the site. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your valuable time. Governor Ricardo Rosselló, Governor of Puerto Rico from the Bloomberg 991 Studios in Washington, D.C. Puerto Rico, we were just talking to the governor, Ricardo Rosseo, about the situation on the island with respect to its $74 billion in debt. We do have an agreement with at least $17 billion of sales tax bonds. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, Michelle Kasky, Puerto Rico reporter for Bloomberg News, as well as Dan Salander, partner and director, uh, also head of municipal bonds at Lord Abbott, uh, normally in Jersey City, but he joins us here in New York. Michelle, I want to start with you. There was an agreement reached and signed off on in bankruptcy court. What was it? Yesterday, the bankruptcy judge, she approved this deal. It's it's the biggest deal so far throughout this Puerto Rico bankruptcy process. And right now, uh, Puerto Rico has about uh, more than 17 billion of sales tax bonds. This deal will cut that down to about 12 billion. And over the life of the debt, uh, the government is saying that they're going to save 17.5 billion in debt service savings. So, Dan, this is, I guess we could characterize this as a very good and very welcome first step. Uh, where do we go from here? Where does the Puerto Rico credit market go from here, in your opinion? Sure. Well, you know, it's a very interesting stage. You know, if you if you thought about where we would be a couple of years ago to reach this stage, it's taken a lot to get here. So, very positive step that we have an agreement. Um, but there is a lot more to do from here. You know, one of the big things in this whole process has been to figure out who gets that sales tax money. That's been the big first step. Now that that's been agreed upon and we have a deal, once we get this finished, then the general obligation shareholders and all the different constituents there need to figure out how to divide up their sales tax and their money. So that's the next step that we'll see soon. Well, but Dan, just to follow up there, another question is how feasible will Puerto Rico's uh, capital structure be once it emerges from bankruptcy? And if it's splitting the sales tax revenue between bondholders uh, and itself and its operations, how feasible is that with a shrinking population? Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the Puerto Rico is obviously not a booming economy, but they're doing much better than people realize. Uh, you know, the, the revenues this year are way hundreds of millions, 600 million something ahead of the forecast. Population drop on nowhere near what was expected. Uh, so things are doing much better than people might have expected. So they're, and they're getting a lot of money from the federal government. So this helps them. It reduces their debt. Some of these bonds are zero coupon bonds. They don't have to pay interest or principal on for a long time. So they're, they're putting themselves in a good state to turn things around and really move towards the future. So, Michelle, how good is this uh, agreement for bondholders? What do you think the recoveries will be for them? Um, some people think that bondholders did very, very well in this deal. The, there, there's two types of the COFINA bonds. There's a senior tranche and a junior tranche, such subordinate. The seniors will get 93 cents on the dollar, subordinate 56 cents on the dollar. And the bonds in the secondary have been trading um, close to that. They're getting closer to that. Um, and they've rallied in the past uh, couple of days. The um, So 93 cents on the dollar is pretty good for seniors. All right. So, Dan, would you be buying more Puerto Rico debt here? 
Well, it's, it's tough at this stage to say whether, whether to buy or sell. I think we've all been through a lot getting to this point. Uh, what's going to be interesting is when the sales tax deal comes to, gets to uh, agreed upon and issued, there are going to be a lot of buyers out there who didn't own Puerto Rico through this. So they're going to have to make that decision when we all get the new bonds of what to do. Yeah, well, is it a net positive for you or a net negative that a lot of traditional uh, mutual fund holders have gotten back into Puerto Rico debt? So, so we're, we're a traditional mutual fund holder who stayed right. stay through this time. Um, and when they're getting back in right now, they're getting back in through aircraft and sewer bonds, things like that, that are paying and have never been in default. I think it could be a big positive for us when this deal comes, gets restructured. We have new bonds they're going to want to buy, and uh, you know they're going to be interest-paying bonds in Puerto Rico that they don't own. So it could be a, a good thing for us. So Michelle, we, this has been a fairly long process. I'm sure if you're a bondholder, a very long process. What do you think are next steps here as this as Puerto Rico continues to try to get out from under this financial crisis? Yeah, it's definitely important. Like Dan was mentioning earlier, it's important that Puerto Rico keeps um, on with this and restructures the general obligation debt so there can be some resolution to that. And then there will be some smaller portions of debt that they'll still need to work on. Um, and also the the issue, too, of their their unfunded uh, pension liabilities. Those Those are a big issue for the island. Also, the question of management, Dan, what's your confidence right now in the management of the island, the ability to take the money that they're receiving from the federal government and use it in an efficient way? Well, that's something you have to watch carefully. Obviously, they, the management got them in this situation originally, and that's why we've been working through this for so many years. You know, the federal government has been giving them money. Uh, it's not all been distributed to them yet, so we have to see what they do with that money when they get it. So and it is how much? Do you have a sense of how much? I saw some number like maybe sixty, seventy, eighty billion dollars of potentially they they can get from the government in different ways. So there is a lot of money going to them. Um, and we they, had the governor on just earlier, and he said quite emphatically that uh, he's going to get that money. They 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 they've been granted it. So a lot of it has been already given to them, or at least the expectations have been given to them, and they've been planning for it. So it would be very difficult for them if they didn't get what was told they'd be getting. So from the bond market perspective. How does the bond market view Puerto Rico now? I mean, you know, at some point they're going to have to come back to the market, and at some point they're going to have to, you know, refinance and, and continue to invest. How do you think they're going to be received? That's the big challenge. I mean, coming out of this, they're going to have to do much better. I mean, one of the issues we've had over time is they have not had audited state uh, financials on time. They have not presented information to shareholders they need to, to bondholders they need to provide. So coming out of this, they're going to be on, on watch. I mean, they're going to have to do things much better than they did before to get the confidence in the market. And until they do, if they want to borrow, the rates are going to be very, very high compared to other similarly rated credits. So it's something to watch. They, it's hard. You know, everyone's going to remember this for a long period of time. We have long memories. Dan Salander, uh, congratulations on being in the bonds through this rocky period because the prices have way more than doubled depending on what we're looking at when you look at the uh, Cofina bonds. Dan Salander is partner and director as well as head of municipal bonds at Lord Abbott in Jersey City. Michelle Kasky is Puerto Rico reporter, uh, dutifully covering all things having to do with this saga as it drags out over the years uh, for us here at Bloomberg News. Well, it's been a widely held story and news that the newspaper business has been in a secular decline for 20 to 30 years. No no surprise there. Uh, but what we've seen over the last several years is a growth of digital media companies, digital news companies such as Vice and BuzzFeed and HuffPost. But even it looks like they are facing their day of reckoning. We'll dig in a little bit there. Uh, so to help us 
dive into those details is Bill Drury. Bill is a founding partner of Pursuit Advisory based here in New York City. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Bill is a longtime investment banker and research analyst following the media sector. So, so Bill, these companies, the vices of the world, these digital news companies, they were getting big valuations, attracting a lot of money, and I think they were perceived maybe as the future of news, maybe replacing the newspapers. What's going on in that space? Well, interesting, interesting times for everybody in the media sector right now, Paul. I think that you're correct. In the last five or six years, there was a new sort of wave of, of darling companies, Vice being one of them, BuzzFeed, Vox, et cetera, that really rose up and, and competed in the, in the digital arena in terms of news content and general entertainment content. They uh, were experiencing very rapid revenue growth and market share, and as a result, were accorded major valuations with a lot of investment from old line media strategics like NBC Universal invested in both uh, BuzzFeed and Vox in the summer of 2015 at a billion dollar valuations, and uh, Disney invested in Vice twice. And at the uh, the last round that Disney invested, it was over four billion dollars. And they also formed a joint venture with Vice, uh, taking one of their A and E cable networks and converting it into Viceland. So it was the new media entering the arena to the old traditional media, but they were getting valuations that were based on revenue multiples and not the traditional cash flow metrics. And over the last two years, I think that what we've seen is a lot of these companies now start to see growth rates recede and, and not being able to reach profitability with uh, you know, aggressive investment and not a lot of cost management. And as a result, all of a sudden, they're starting to hit the wall. Okay, so how much is this bad management on the part of these uh, these media companies, these digital media companies, or imprudent uh, management? And how much is this some sort of shift in the news business toward, say, the Facebooks of the world and the Apples of the world? Yeah, uh, well, two questions there, and I think that on the on the first one, you know, it's just a classic case of of companies that are getting high valuations and a lot of inflows of investment capital and then rapidly deploying that to go after revenue growth with no real fundamental cost management attached to it. We've seen this for multiple cycles over the last 20 years. With the rise of digital, every cycle has been marked by companies unable to reach profitability. And and the third time around, it's the same story. So I think that, you know, it's it's very classic in that regard. On the other side, I think that you know, you've seen this 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 rise of these new digital platforms, uh, and they produce excellent news content, but they can't monetize it because Google, Facebook, and to some degree now Amazon have basically just sucked all the oxygen out of the market. They are growing and basically taking over a hundred percent share of incremental opportunity, and there's nothing left for the next generation. It, it, it's unique in that regard. So that sounds like. You know, if you think about the profit challenges that you talked about, you, talk, you think about the competitive landscape, this looks like an environment that might be ripe for some consolidation. Do you think that we will see some of these companies merge to try to get some scale to compete against? Spoken like a true banker. Like a true banker. Yeah. I, Opportunity. I, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that I think that it's it's going to be inevitable and probably sooner rather than later. Paul, part of the question is going to be how many of these companies can even really survive? Just in the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen several companies uh, go bankrupt 
Defy Media is is one good example. A company that had over a hundred million of uh, dollars of revenue just year before last. Major investment from um, uh, large complexes like Wellington and shareholders like Viacom, Lionsgate, and uh, Zelnick Media. And the company basically just went out of business in the last six months. Exited. Um, and and we've also seen several other smaller companies. Uh, that had strategic shareholders sell for valuations far less than where they last raised capital. So it's inevitable that they have to consolidate. The question is who can survive through that? So content is king, but only if it's content on Apple, Amazon, or uh, or Google. I think that I think that's a good point. It, it is virtually impossible to build scale now in this market, revenue scale, with a real profit margin attached to it and compete against the three or four behemoths. Interesting times. It is. I, I, I have to wonder. It is. It is fascinating because I have to wonder uh, what the competition will end up looking like. What conglomerate of some of these online media sources will look like because they were successful. It's not you, you know. It's a bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And I'll, I'll tell you. And, and Bill's a longtime new newspaper analyst. I'll tell you where the hole is that the digital world has not filled, and that is local news. Um, mm, we've got yeah. great national and global news, but we have no local news, and that is a problem. And whoever can figure out that model. I think we'll have uh, a real opportunity. Bill Drury, if you're listening, you are listening. <laughs> Paul is giving some. <laughs> we'll have to have you back and, and you'll have to weigh in on the local news. Bill Drury, founding partner of Pursuit Advisors in New York, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. The Fed is patient and investors view that as all clear to dive back into risk, fueling one of the best rallies on record for certainly high yield bonds to start the year. Joining us now is Tom Kennedy, head of fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank, uh, which has assets of more than $500 billion. Tom worked at the New York Fed for nearly a decade, knows how the Fed thinks. So, Tom, what does the Fed mean when they say they are going to be patient with raising rates? Yeah, I think the I think the market's interpreting it the right way, Lisa. They, they're giving the Fed's giving us a runway for risk. We're all going to have to ask ourselves how long is that runway? But that word patient means something to them. They've only used it in the FOMC statement a handful of times in history. That's parsing language. Oh yeah, but but <laughs> we know that's what it. Fed watchers do. <laughs> that's what Fed watchers do. But so so how long is this runway? I think the runway is at least three months. I think the Fed is promising us that for at least three months we're not going to do anything. Uh, I think that word patient actually does mean too that they're going to expect to hike again, but they're going to see how the world evolves uh, over those coming three months to make a decision what their next move is. And I took those words very carefully. They're going to see how the world evolves. I think Powell's been telling us data dependence is the most important piece. Financial conditions and how those evolve are just as important. All right, so a three-month runway is a relatively short runway from my perspective. So do I take that three months to not get too far over my skis, but maybe to uh, maybe improve the quality of my portfolio? Is that Should I be preparing for what's beyond that runway? Yeah, I think that's the right question. And I think that the answer to that question is different for everyone. If you have been um, insulating your portfolio for the last six to eight months, adding things that should perform well in a down economy, then I think you should take advantage of this risk one runway and add a little bit of, of, of beta or risk back to a portfolio. However, if you have not been insulating your portfolio, use some of this rally to do so. Is it too late to get the upside of this rally? No, I don't think so. I think you what you need to do is look for things that have lagged year to date 
And those those are maybe trades that have liquidity dynamics that are not especially uh, attractive. Like what? What are you talking about? Um, we can find such things in high yield. We can find things in the preferred space. Looking for things that year to date have lagged the broader ind indice uh, rallies. That's where we're focusing right now because that's where we should see price appreciation in this short, quote unquote, runway for risk. Was there anything in the jobs report last Friday that caused you or more importantly caused the Fed to maybe rethink their dovish view? I think they're, they've been telling us they're going to follow inflation as closely as possible. Um, in there, there is nothing that jumped out to me and inflation is going to run away from them. I think we're still seeing the steady, gradual increases in inflation. Um, Powell's focusing very much on what the inflation universe is going to tell him to do. I, I don't think that's, that's a myopic view of what the, the world will look like for the Fed. The financial conditions po component is going to be just as important to decide what is next rate hike, which I believe, versus a rate cut. Basically, if the markets rally too much and people get too excited about risk, the Fed hikes and puts an end to the party. Yeah, at the end. <laughs> absolutely. I think that's right. <laughs> All right. So given that dynamic, uh, how important is liquidity at this point? Liquidity is, um, I think, in the investment universe is often only thought of as cash. Cash provides you liquidity. But there is, in the investment spectrum, you can think of this as callously as on the run or off the run bonds, things that are actively traded or not. We're trying to find ways to actively add liquidity beyond just cash. Because if we think the Fed is closer to the end of the cycle and cuts are coming, cash is going to be a quote unquote underperformer. The return will go down. I want to add liquidity so people have flexibility in a, in a downdraft economy. So are you talking about ETFs, derivatives, or just bonds that are traded uh, very frequently? because of the ETFs. Great. I mean, we can, we can take this this conversation for an hour and talk about market structure of what liquidity really is. You can do that in single name bonds. You can do that in, in passive versus active uh, investing strategies. Um, the places where I think you're going to find the most liquidity are in names that are actively traded by primary dealers. And the passive investing universe is going to see some mark-to-market -market moves that don't make a lot of economic sense to them because you're seeing uh, forced selling and forced buying in those products. It's interesting, just, and this is a little bit off the Fed speak, but when you talk about finding liquidity, that's a theme that Lisa and I have been hearing about from a, you know, a lot of market participants saying it's hard to find liquidity in the marketplace. How, how do your clients trade, how do they feel the trading market is, and how do you, where do you tell them to go to find that liquidity and yet still find some value? The, I think the reason it's coming up so much now is because December was a really challenging time for liquidity. The inability to offload risk in some instances and in some products, whether that be a floating rate product or in the preferred space, it took days to offload risk. That is not a normal dynamic that people have felt for the better part of 10 years. So that's regulatory uh, changes at practice. And when I look at what does the liquidity world look like today versus what it looked like 10 years ago, I think it's about 10% as liquid yeah. because of the, the amount of supply that primary dealers are holding. And it's only going to really feel that pain in times of stress. December was an event study for that that we'll be looking at for a long time. So uh, just real quick here, about 30 seconds, Clear Channel selling bonds today with triple C ratings to more than $2 billion of bonds. Would you be a buyer? Um, we're not able to talk about soliciting those to our clients whatsoever. Uh, triple C's don't offer to me from a strategic perspective much value at this level. Interesting you bring up Clear Channel. I'm very intimately involved with Clear Channel. I was there during the founding of that company and the ah. growth of that company and when it was had a, a very good capital structure. Unfortunately, 
leverage buyout in the, the peak of the market in 2006 and just put a capital structure on there and that it couldn't stand. So bankruptcy and here we are trying to Here we are, triple C bonds <laughs> triple and another C $2 billion bonds. debt. So Tom Kennedy, thanks so much. Tom Kennedy is the head of fixed income strategy at JP Morgan uh, Private Banking, helping us parse through all things Fed. He spent 10 years at the Fed, five years with uh, the former Fed, New York Fed chairman, um, uh, Bill Dudley. Bill Dudley, yeah. thank you, who just had a great article out that Lisa and I have been talking about. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.